Inner Voice. A heartfelt chat with Dr. Fujian. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Inner Voice podcast. It's so great to be with you. I'm Dr. Fujian Zain. I'm a psychotherapist, author, and the originator of the Awareness Integration Theory. Our conversation here is about what matters in our life, our minds, our thoughts, feelings, actions, relationships, and our fulfillment in this beautiful journey of life. I wanted to share with you the books that um, are published and they are here. The latest one that is published is uh, Intentional Parenting, a practical guide to awareness integration theory with two of my colleagues, my best friends and uh, wonderful co-authors, Dr. Nicole Jaffery, who is um, a professor at uh, various universities and her um, major contribution is uh, human development, child development, and she's an international parenting coach. And also Dr. Eileen Manukian, who is, um, she, her, she has her uh, PhD in uh, early childhood um, development, and uh, she has created uh, the first uh, child care program uh, with the concept of awareness integration theory as a um, learning and as an educational uh, component of uh, of that daycare. So together, the three of us wrote into intentional parenting. It takes you every uh, chapter to a particular age group, and uh, you will enjoy it. If you are an educator, if you are a parent, um, if you are a daycare or um, you know the teacher from um, until twelfth uh, grade. Any anybody who can utilize some uh, good theories and interventions and practical practical guides can really really use that uh, book. So I want you to know that's available on Amazon or uh, Cambridge Scholarly. Um, the next book, which uh, has been out for therapists and coaches, um, is the Awareness Integration Therapy: Clear the Past, Create a New Future, and Live a Fulfilled Life. This will take uh, the therapists and coaches who are working with clients uh, to uh, a place where they can be uh, learning how to be, how to go through the six phases of um, the awareness integration therapy. Uh, and uh, I hope you really enjoy it. Again, you can get that from Amazon or uh, Cambridge Scholarly Publishing. Without further ado, um, in this episode, I chat with Dr. Ebony Butler. She's great. She is a licensed psychologist, a food relationship strategist who has made it her mission to help women of color heal and thrive in the areas of trauma, including racial trauma and recovering from food and body trauma experienced through diet culture. Dr. Ebony works alongside women to help them develop skills that increase their relationship with others, themselves, and their bodies, aligning with her passion to break through barriers that make it difficult for Black people and other people of color to access quality mental health care. Dr. Ebony created My Therapy Cards, the first ever self-exploration card deck for Black women and other women of color. Since its launch in May 2020, Dr. Ebony has expanded the card deck to include a teen edition and men's edition. And the expansion of this resource has made self-insight and discovery work more accessible and affordable. 
We walk, uh, we, we, the two of us, talk about diet culture, the effect of globalization on the white and diet culture, how it affects us, and much, much more. I learned a lot, and I hope you do too. Subscribe to my podcast, my YouTube channel, connect with me through my website, um, fujanzain.com, or any of the social media. And if you are someone who really just wants to work on yourself as uh, one of the greatest self-help books, um, that that I got uh, for you is the Life Reset, um, an awareness integration path into um, creating the life that you want, creating the life that you deserve. Um, and you can do that by just going through the book and uh, looking at the um, exercises. Remember, I love to hear from you. And uh, here it is, Dr. Ebony Butler. Dr. Ebony Butler, it's so nice to have you. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. I first uh, met you at the California Association for Marriage and Family um, annual um, conference, which um, you were talking about food, relationship with food. And um, I learned so much in that one hour and um, I came back out and I'm like, I want you in my show. <laughs> so thank you for taking the time and being with me. Yeah, of course. I'm excited. I can always talk about this stuff. And I'm always excited when people are just as excited as me. So um, how did you get interested in relationship with food? So it's ironic. So I tell people a lot as therapists, you probably know this, but a lot of us go into therapy to work on some issues that we also notice in our own families or within ourselves, right? So I became a weight loss coach around 2015 because I had lost a lot of weight. What diet culture says is a lot of weight. And so I built a business around helping other women do the same thing. Well, what happened in that business is I felt like something just was gnawing at me. Like this isn't right. Something doesn't feel right. I didn't particularly feel well telling other women, especially women who look like me, well, you know, your body just isn't good enough. And if you would just get skinny, then you would be good enough. And I was like, something doesn't feel right about that. It feels exploitive. And I don't really, I can't really sit with myself. So I said, what can I do as a psychologist? How can I take my training and infuse this with people who do have struggles around their body. So I started doing a lot of like mindset stuff, mindset shifting. And as I learned more about the oppressiveness of diet culture and that it really does have roots in anti-Blackness, I was like, well, I definitely can't be a Black woman talking to other women of color about their body not their bodies not being good enough because I'm doing the same thing. I'm pushing anti-Black rhetoric onto uh, people who look like me. Can you explain that to me? Because mm -hmm. I'm from originally from Iran. And mm -hmm. so um, the same culture of the United States with Black is not necessarily the same culture of the rest of the world uh, with Black. But then the culture of uh, the food and um, are you heavy or not heavy or what's beautiful and what's not beautiful maybe because of the media, it has become kind of similar across the world, right? Like media tells us what is beautiful and what we should look like. Right, right, right. And you said that the history of it, uh, you found that it was anti-Black. Can you please educate me on that? 
Yeah. So there's a book that I read. It's called Fearing the Black Body, the Racist Origins of Diet Culture or Fat Phobia is what it says, the Racist Origins of Fat Phobia. So that book is actually written by Sabrina Strings. And so she goes all the way back to when we even started classifying race. Why do we even have race categorizations? It used to be nationality characters. Um, categorizations but then we developed these race categorizations so that the white population could actually be bigger and more supreme right more majority um than the other population so there was a time in history where if you were from italy if you were from from germany depending on what parts you were looked at as less than because of where you were from but then to to uh promote the more majority as white that's where the classifications came from so germans come over here italians come over here all these people come over here so that we can be a bigger group. So that's the origin of race classification. In that, though, there's also the other who is always going to be the Black, the Black community, the Black folks, right? So as beauty standards progress, as status progress, how do we other everybody else and how do we create majority? How do we make them less appealing, right? So people can want to be in this group. So if you remember back in history, um, Sarah Bartman was the black woman who was put on display for her body type, right? Her big butt, things like that. So black people were then looked at as people who were grotesque, insatiable in their appetites, and people whose bodies just were not appealing and people who couldn't control their appetites, therefore control themselves. So how do we be everything other than that inserts media, inserts dieting, inserts beauty standards? This is what beauty looks like. And it was based around a European model of beauty. European being being white, typically thin white. Um, because there are points in history where being a big white man meant you had status, but never a big black, I mean, a big white woman. So basically- Some of the, some of the paintings of Renaissance <laughs> appears to be uh, chubby. I, I always joke and I say, I should have been born at that time because exactly. my body type is that. Well, think about how that has actually gone now. If we look at other Renaissance, more modern, the, the bodies are a lot more slender. Look at the abs. That hasn't always been the case. That hasn't always been the case. But insert media, insert beauty industry, insert Vogue magazine, insert print magazines, newspapers. That is what we came to know as the beauty standard. Right. right? So thinness was aligned with whiteness, mm. status, money. Everything else big was aligned with bad, bad, a.k.a. black. So when you think about the racism that is inherent in diet culture and beauty, then we, we can see that a lot of the standards by which we are now following around how my body should be is related to the thinness that we see that's represented in the media, but not our bodies. From, from your perspective, then what happens to the, since we're talking uh, color, like yeah. uh, yellow and brown and red, then what happens to that group? Because obviously they're not part of the white group. Well, here's the thing, and that's such a good question. Diet culture doesn't care who it harms. Mm -hmm. Diet culture, I always say, takes white women down with it the most. Because these are the people you see who typically are represented. Doesn't mean that we don't have eating disorders, but we're typically represented in the eating disorders, right? White women are typically represented in the eating disorders. They're typically represented in the people who are over dieting, the people who are uh, at the front of diet movements, the people who you see in the the magazines, the gym models, the gym advertisements, and white women, because they see themselves in that, I have to be that, right? And so it really does, I think, a lot of harm to white women, even though white women has been the standard by which it has, white women and men have been the standard by which it has been modeled. Here's what happens with Asians and other people of color. 
white people, again, if you look in Asian cultures, you'll see that basically they are white aligned as well. There's a lot of skin lightening. There's a lot of um, just kind of like wanting to align with whiteness, a lot of beauty standards that are centered around whiteness, white whiteness being supreme, a lot of trying not to tan, that kind of thing, skin lightening creams. Well, what happens with white supremacy is white supremacy says you come over here too, because then if you are against black, then that also raises and pushes our agenda of white supremacy forward. So Asians have somehow got in the mix of this whole movement of white supremacy and blackness and whiteness they become invisible. So if you ever talk to people of Asian culture, one of the things that they experience is this invisibility. We are not seen, right? And so other people of color, same thing happens, unless you are typically Hispanic of Latin background, that kind of thing, then you are kind of, you're in that too, and you'll see a lot of Hispanic cultures, a lot of Latin um, descendants or people of Latin descent will try to lighten their skin as well. And there's a dark Afro, uh, Afro um, Latina, Afro Latino, those kinds of things. And you'll see the racism that exists within those groups as well because of what white supremacy does. And it goes into every group and infiltrates it and inserts colorism. So you'll see this in all of our groups um, if you just kind of like think about what's happening. And so you will see people who I know my friends, they, you know, Hispanic people, people of Latin descent. If you're a dark-skinned Mexican person, you're seen as less than than a lighter skinned Mexican person. So these people, so when we talk about anti-blackness, we're not only talking about black folks, we're talking about people of color too, because they get swept up in this whole madness as well, because white white supremacy has infiltrated all of our cultures and all of our, our um I guess histories to make whiteness the more supreme thing. And then now we're chasing standards that align with whiteness. So I think that's a really good question. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, I'm also noticing that the age is going lower and lower uh, to, to have a concern about this because due to media, um, men and women are both getting more sexualized. Mm -hmm. uh, the fashion is becoming more sexualized, even for younger kids. Like sometimes I, um, you know, for the grandkids, you know, we go purchase stuff and then I'm looking at some of them and I'm like, that is so sexualized even for a five or a six-year-old. And um, as, and therefore, I see now uh, girls who are eight years old or nine years old being fed this concept of what they have to look like and they have to look sexy and their body has to look a particular way. And um, it's the same as uh, boys. Mm -hmm. Boys are the same thing. Like they are, you know, now they have to be thin but buff. And uh, they go through extremes to create that for themselves. So not only you're talking about across the lane, uh, the lane of race and culture, but also age now is, has uh, been a factor. Well, you think about the exposure, the media exposure. Think about kind of like what we had print magazine. We didn't have access to social media in ways that young people have now access to YouTube things like that, like videos all the time, influencers who are their ages making all of this money, right? So when we think about who we see, we think about the money and the status, it's getting exposed to them earlier and earlier, and they're becoming more and more aware of what their bodies look like in relation to what they're seeing on screen. We had teen magazines, we had, we had Cosmo, we had all the other magazines to look at, but we didn't really have access to those until we were like in middle school, high school, but now the exposure is happening early. And with that exposure comes awareness of your body and how am I similar or different than what I'm seeing. And that insert, you know, the comparison and that kind of thing. Also, we have to be careful as adults, what they hear us say as well. 
because some children are also hearing mothers pick at their bodies because we're all we're all reaping the consequences of diet culture so our bodies aren't good enough we need to do this we need to do that so imagine a little girl seeing her mom tug at her bathing suit and like talk about herself and then bam I want is that if you see your body like that how do you see me and I want to dress like mommy so all of these things um and we have to also remember that the retail clothing industry fashion industry has never cared about keeping children children they're caring about what sells right and so you're going to see a lot of this sexualization because insert influencer culture right and so who's going to be the next big YouTube person so all of this stuff shapes and plays off of each other so you're absolutely right younger and younger people are becoming more concerned with their bodies and more concerned on the I'm bad side of things rather than my body is okay not enough positive and the reason I brought that up is because a lot of the body image um, is is attached to the attractiveness of the sexual attractiveness because yeah. it's not about only of you having um, a healthy body uh, mm -hmm. no matter what the uh, for it to be a specific type of a weight or a shape but it's supposed to be a beautified body of your breasts having a certain size and then your waist having a certain size and you know doing surgery on on your breast or your buttock or uh, different places or uh, in order to look a certain way so part of the diet industry um has to do with supposedly had to do with health but mm -hmm. when you really look at it it has nothing to do with health. It really has to do with sexual beauty, attractiveness as a, a beautiful person to be attractive. Yes, you're spot on. I mean, no, if you even think about the BMI, right, it's antiquated, but they won't change it. It's outdated. It no longer it has relevancy or scientific backing, but they continue to use it. So when you think about all these things and, and it fuels money for surgery, if I just tell you that you're too fat to be, in the body that you're in and you need to lose weight, well, weight loss surgery has ramped up. And then with weight loss surgery is how do we get your body now to look perfect in proportion, breasts, butt, hips. And there's, you know, all of these things are playing into each other and continuing to create, I guess, create con confusion for folks who live inside their bodies. Like, my body is not good enough. Let me get bigger breasts. Let me get, you know, bigger butts. And objectifying women especially you think about mommy makeovers which i find if folks want to do that but it's all really about sexualizing how can we how can we sexualize people more how can we sell this idea that that is what's beautiful and get people to change their bodies to to look like that that drives money it fuels capitalism it, it just keeps things like cyclical and diet culture fuels the medical industry fuels more money so it all plays in together and creates more and more, I think, mental health issues for folks, to be honest. A lot of the mental health issues um, start with the concept of I don't belong to the elite group. I don't belong to the beautiful group, that I'm um, the, the desired group. And then uh, the self-esteem comes down and then some people put themselves in positions it, it, just to be a uh, part of the group and they become traumatized because they keep putting themselves in a position of being objectified and nobody um, nobody becomes healthy after being objectified. Even the ones that are objectified without their choice, but even the ones who are choosing this, it still there's a space of emptiness that happens that leads to that type of 
depression and anxiety and then getting or putting yourself acting in a way that you keep putting yourself in positions to be traumatized and victimized consistently. It's an inherent and sort of ingrained belief that I'm not good enough. If I had to sum up what does diet culture teaches, you're not good enough. You're never going to be good enough. Nobody, even the people who the beauty standards are shaped after, nobody's ever going to be good enough because there's always going to be one more thing you can fix. There's always going to be one more thing that you can do, which, yes, creates the depression, more anxiety, chasing more money, status. I tell people all the time, I was thinking about uh, women in, in leadership positions in corporate America. The higher you climb the scale, the more you pick at your body. The more educated you become, the more you think your body has to be manipulated and smaller, right? It's something to, we, something to say about the way we are always chasing this carrot of perfection. How can we be more perfect? How can we be more good, good enough? Because it's associated with beauty, money, class, status, love, desirability. And if we're not there, then yes, anxiety comes, depression comes. All of these other things that continue to plague us, honestly, in the mental health field are going to be present if we're continuing to chase that. And aging. Because you're oh, ages. Matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter how amazing looking you are. Aging is going to defy that at one point or not. So you're going to fall right on your face at one point and keep looking at what you used to be. And this body isn't going to cooperate to be something that you or you know the media says it needs to be. Like you become irrelevant if you're mm -hmm. not. You're aging and you're no longer having the sexual beauty, then might as well just be irrelevant. Yeah. And um, you bring up a really good point. The diet culture, not only is it anti-Black, is ageist. You have to be young. Like, what pictures are we seeing? You have to be young. And you, the money, like who has access to all of these things? In diet culture, one of the critiques is that it doesn't take into account gravity. It doesn't take into account um, access it doesn't take into account all of these things right it just says oh but if you were disciplined enough oh but if you were motivated enough oh but if you cared and loved yourself enough you would just be skinny or you just be healthy aka skinny and we know that age impacts that <laughs> your body doesn't quite metabolize things in the same way so what do you say about that diet culture and usually there's no rebuttal but you just got to keep working at it just got to keep doing better. So as we become aware, and a, a lot of what you do is to create awareness. And um, as we become aware of all of this, and if you didn't want to subscribe to it, or you, you didn't want to defy it, but you don't want to subscribe to it either, um, you have another way of being with your body and who you are in the midst of all the messages that are coming at us mm -hmm. from out there. Mm -hmm. I think the shifting the focus to more values, being more values aligned, what's important to me? What are my priorities? Do I feel healthy? So it's going to be more of an intuitive values-based anchoring perspective rather than an external perspective where we're relying on the rules of diet culture to tell us what we should be. But what's important to me? I value health. What does health look like? Not what I've been told, but what does health look like? And let me figure out some other outcomes. Because right now, all we know health to be is what the scale says, what the scale says, what our clothing sizes say. But what else makes me feel healthy? And these are the conversations we have with clients. Do energy, sleep. What does my skin look like? When do I notice that I'm, I'm, more, I'm more away from my healthy sort of um, 
point than I want to be. What I feel good when I run, I'm not out of breath. I feel good when I eat, I'm sleeping better. My, my I'm alert. I'm having better conversations. My words are flowing more coherently. My skin looks good. My back doesn't have acne, those kinds of things. My sex drive is up. I'm more communicative with folks. I have better attitudes. So these are all health outcomes that we can focus on. And you'd be amazed at what people think when they say, oh, I can focus on that, those things too. Absolutely. And if we take an approach of values, then we also would take that to food. What does my body tell me? What is the feedback that my body is giving me about what I'm putting in my body? Rule-based, which is diet culture says, don't eat that, don't eat this. Values-based perspective, more internal, intuitive perspective says, what does my body say about what I'm eating? Because diet culture can tell me to eat. I use the example of kale a lot. Diet culture can tell me to eat kale, but my body says we don't like kale. So what we would do if we're only reliant on those rules is we would feed our body, feed our body kale, forego, ignore, dismiss the bloating that happens, the upset stomach that happens. And what we'll say is, oh, but we need it. So you're not aligned. So a lot of the work that I do is helping people find the alignment in listening and slowing things down. Like really, let's, let's understand what it said. Do you need a gallon of water a day? No, but my trainer said I do. How does your body respond to a gallon of water? Oh, I feel sluggish or because actually that can happen. I feel more anxious. That can happen. So let's see if we back off of that, what happens. So it's helping people to get more grounded, reconnecting their mind back to their bodies because diet culture disrupts that. Let's clarify something also, mm -hmm. which is sometimes when I've worked with clients and this client also, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, the connection to the body appears to be a uh, connection to my taste buds. Oh, yeah. So it's like, uh, so, and that's not what you're sharing. You're saying that if you're connecting with the body, you're actually connecting with your gut and experience of, you know, discomfort or comfort or you after eating something, you feel like, wow, it was the right portion. It was the right thing versus, you know, not. Um, but a lot of times it's like, oh, I want this and that, you know, that I'm, I'm craving for a sweet or I'm craving mm -hmm. for this. And it's like the craving and the taste that pulls me, mm -hmm. um, it towards something and, um, it just, you know, it, it feeds it, which usually has sugar and salt and some fat in it. And the, especially the combo of those three, uh, it hooks and you're, you're consistent, like, you know, you can't just have one potato chip. Right. Right. Um, it, it appears that you're listening to your body, but that's not the same listening. Yes, it is, though. You'd it's be amazed. Tell yes. me. So listening to your body means honoring all of the taste buds that you have. You can taste sweets for a reason. You taste salty things for a reason. Slowing down doesn't mean that we can't have the things. It means that maybe I overindulge out of lack of awareness. And I ate the whole bag, but let me mindfully eat these chips because I'm not saying no, because I clearly want it. But maybe if I'm mindfully doing it, I may find that I want the whole thing or I, I may find that, you know what? I didn't even like the way they tasted. I just eat, ate them because that was habitual. I just ate them because I was not aware. So being grounded doesn't mean that you deny yourself or say yes to everything. It means that we find what is, what is going on for me in the moment and what do I need to tend to now? It, it means releasing yourself from scarcity and no to what do I need, what's effective. Well, I want this whole chocolate bar. I'm going to have this whole chocolate bar right now. And trusting and getting to a place where you understand that your body is always working to find balance. And one chocolate bar is not going to throw your body's balance off. 
but we're doing things with more intention and slowing down. So tell me also about uh, people who have addiction. Yeah. And the mind of the addiction shows up and it brings the craving and it brings a lot of justifications. Mm -hmm. But obviously the other side of it doesn't feel good. And I'm sensing that what you're saying is if you are aware enough and you slow down the process of awareness, then you also capture that you're not feeling well. So you could put these things together where one, one part of you wants it and another part is defying it. And then somehow you have to come to some negotiation with yourself in order what to do, because you've, you've processed, you, you, you've brought the awareness uh, to a place that you're not acting impulsively, but you're acting um, out of the awareness. There's an intentionality through the values that gets you into the action versus just act, acting impulsively. Did I get that right? Yes, but let's talk, there's a layer that we're missing when we talk about, if we're going to use the word addiction and talk about like sugar addictions and that kind of thing, we have to talk about why people become addicted to certain things outside of genetics and biology, right? Some people become addicted to things many times because they're working through and trying to resolve and cope with trauma. So this trauma piece comes in and disrupts our abilities to actually feel grounded in our bodies and to have a mind-body connection. So if we're going to address addictions that people have. We have to address what led them to using this as a coping skill. What are they trying to cope against? What are they trying to cope with? And what purpose does the addiction serve? So if you're, you know, you it's, it's bigger than just saying, you know, this is more complex than just saying, oh, slow it down when I don't feel comfortable in my body when I've never had to slow things down. So part of us getting people to slow down means resolving some of that trauma that they're dealing with. Mm -hmm. And we can't do that. And so when people come to me and they're working on, wanting to work on food relationship, I say, do a trauma assessment. If there's trauma there that hasn't been worked on or addressed, we can't get to food relationship stuff because that's going to disrupt it every single time. So if we're talking about values, that means that we're also doing some healing work. That means we're also aware we are tapped into our bodies enough to slow our bodies down. We feel safe enough in our bodies to listen to our bodies. Many times, many of us have experienced harm to our bodies that don't allow us to just sit there. So if you're not going to give me anything that I could use to feel comfortable in my body, other than this sugar, I'm not going to be able to do it. So we have to get you to a place where you are aware of other coping skills that you can use. But yes, yeah, say that healing has taken place. Mm -hmm. Say that you are aware you can sit in your body and it's safe. Yes. Our work to do is to help you find ways that you pause the impulsivity, that you become more intentional and aware of ways that you are responding to the sugar craving. Maybe you need to do something to cut the sugar, balance the sugar, because an addiction is not balanced. Right. An addiction is an overconsumption. So we want to invite in more balance, invite in something that's going to be a lot more stabilizing. That's when we would say no to some things, say yes to some things, moderation. So that's why I call myself a strategist because each person is going to be different. You don't put the same thing for the same person each time. The other side of the concept of food is um, also cultural and uh, so societal aspect of every single, um, let's say, gathering, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, every single celebration, mm -hmm. um, even grief, um, anything that has to do with any types of emotions that society wants to come together is also around food. Yes. So it's it's this relationship, uh, it's the duality of the relationship that you find yourself with food. One is, obviously, it's your fuel. It's uh, what makes your body go forward and be healthy. 
The next one is a socialization um, tool mm -hmm. in order to get together. We go to restaurants, we go birthday parties, all of the, you know, gatherings are around food. And then there's also the aspect of when you want to soothe someone, you know, even from very early childhood, you it's the breast milk and then the pacifier. And then, you know, the minute that there's a anguish for the child, there's definitely some food involved to calm it down. Um, and then it's con the concept of who am I and my body versus uh, this food thing, which is uh, based on so many levels and the connection is so many levels on, on there. And they, they can be there can be very complicated um, experience in a relationship because of all these matters. And then mm -hmm. you talked about also the trauma where sometimes in order to calm, calm ourselves down and shove the trauma and emotions down, we fill ourselves with food. Food serves so many purposes. It's everywhere, which makes it so hard, like it's saying, to actually figure out what your relationship should look like. Um, Many of us show love through food. It's everywhere. So it behooves us and, and benefits us to actually find a balanced relationship with food, one where we feel more in control and powerful with food. We feel neutral with food versus like we're bad or good people in relation to food. What diet culture teaches us is that depending on what you put in your mouth, that's going to determine your worth. That's going to determine your value. So anytime you show food, you're already conditioned to feel guilt. We don't need a relationship with food that's riddled with guilt. If we do, we're going to be guilty at every turn because guess what? Food is at every turn. So that's why the judgments are persistent. That's why we're constantly and chronically judging ourselves. But if we find a neutral place with food where we're like, you know what? Food is here. Food is here. Food has always been here. I could take it if I want it. I can leave it if I don't. We begin to neutralize the relationship and honestly release ourselves from the guilt, shame, and judgment that comes with it. Food is love. We come from cultures where we show people love through food. This is just what it is. We're not doing that all the time. But when we insert scarcity, that's when we start hoarding food. That's when we start hoarding these experiences because we feel like we'll never have them again. Mm -hmm. Let me get more and more. So we talk about removing scarcity and invite in abundance, invite in availability. Because out of that, you'll, you'll find that you have a more neutral relationship. I tell people all the time, if you can't quite grasp relationship with food because you've been so conditioned by diet culture, think about it as a relationship with another person. If you're in a relationship with a man, there are men everywhere you go, but you aren't trying to form a relationship with every single man that you see. You aren't judging yourself just because you're like, oh, he's a nice looking guy. Oh, that's a nice looking woman. So why are we doing that with food? because we've been conditioned to do so. You will talk to who you wanna to talk to and stay away from who you don't wanna to talk to based on your values. If you're in a committed relationship with somebody, you don't just see a guy on a plane and say, oh, well, some people may, but you're just like, I have boundaries. And at some point, even if you engage, boundaries start to show up, right? Because you know that there is something else that you have values attached to. This can be the same thing with food. Just because food is there doesn't mean that it means something bad or that we can't have it. At some point we have to realize what are our boundaries, but if we're engaging out of scarcity and if somebody ever told us, you won't ever be able to talk to another man in your life, guess what you're gonna do? Talk to every man that you see. But if you know, I can talk to whoever I wanna talk to, but I'm committed to this person, I wanna be there. Those boundaries are gonna come in and help you slow things down. Typically they will, right? 
there's a freedom to it. It's a yes, it's a freedom, it's a liberation. It's that I have control over this. I can engage with you, and then I get to determine what that engagement looks like. Because I'm in a committed relationship, this can only go here. You're my colleague, right? So same with food. Because I'm full and my body is telling me I don't, I can only do this. Because I'm aware that this makes my body feel like this, I can do this. So a lot of times people don't think about food in those ways because diet culture hasn't taught us to do that. So I always encourage people to slow it down and think about a relationship with another person. Do you like relationships that make you feel guilty? No. Do you like people who tell you you can't live and be free in your, in your life? No. So how do we want to change that to be more symbolic in our food relationship? How do we make that more similar? You also have uh, my therapy cards uh, that you created. Let me show uh, what I have, um, which they're ca different cards. You have them for teenagers. You have them for relationships um, or your body and all of it. So um, I two questions come for, for me. One is, uh, what got you to want to do the therapy cards? Um, uh, and I saw them, uh, they were buying them like uh, crazy. So I know everybody was enjoying the cards and, and uh, utilizing them. And I think it's fun to do that. But I wanted to know what, what brought you to bring that because it has a lot of awareness questions and, and statements in them as I was looking over. Um, the other side that I was I, uh, witnessing and, and uh, becoming more aware all of the cards are toward uh, Black culture. And you also said you work a lot with the Black women. Um, how come, how come you work, you're, you're concentrating on this particular group? Yeah, so first we, we have to think about the history of mental health and how it started. Mental health Talk therapy for Black folks started out as a way to remove us from being delinquent and how to make us more civilized people in society. So when you think about talk therapy, you think about mental health, who and think about who had access to training. Most of the people who had access to training were white people telling Black people how they should act and thinking like how, how to make these people more civilized because again, we weren't civilized. So if you, the Harlem Project is one of the earlier projects that said Black people and teens are more likely to become juveniles. So how do we use mental health to make them not become delinquent and juveniles? When you have people who are not a part of your culture determining what your mental health, your stability, your livelihood looks like, that can be harmful. That can be, that can lead to overdiagnosing, that can lead to overgelling lead to laws that don't benefit the community. So we need more people who look like us who can understand what is happening for folks. And so those nuances exist that other people may not be able to see. We're more culturally immersed versus what is told in, tra in training to be culturally competent. Cultural competence doesn't always work to get people the things that they need when you're sitting across from somebody who doesn't look like you. But cultural immersion, cultural, um, cultural responsiveness is needed to be able to determine how do we not harm people? How do we hear where people are coming from without inserting our privilege or without you know, ignoring our privilege? And some people just don't know the privilege. And so they'll tell you, well, you need to do this and you need to eat more salad, you need to eat more greens. We don't have a, we don't have a grocery store in our area. There are food deserts. So I'm not non-compliant because this is what people, these are languages that we use in mental health, right? Patient is non-compliant. I'm not non-compliant, I don't have access. And so you being a part of the, the, the community helps me to see systems for what they are. It helps me to slow down in diagnosing and looking at mental health issues and people as pathological versus consequential to the systems that exist. Mm -hmm. 
So as a person, um, as a black woman, I wanted to do that. And I wanted to be somebody who could help the people who look like me, because we don't always have that. Representation is important. Yes. The reason a lot of people don't think eating disorders exist in the black community is because media hasn't shown a lot of black people with eating disorders. When we see eating disorders on TV, because that's typically where we're getting a lot of information, it's then white young girls. And so then when you come back to the black family and you a teen girl is telling her mom, I'm having an eating disorder. No, you don't. That's white people stuff. And so then you have a black girl who's not getting the help she needs because nobody believes that that's actually an issue. So we constantly have these things that are coming up falling under the, the radar, people harming themselves, people not getting the help that they need, using drugs now to deal because we don't know that these issues exist in our community. So it's important to me that you have somebody who also looks like you and also knows this training, has the skills to be able to advocate on different levels and be able to tease out things that you wouldn't otherwise have access to. So it's important to me to be able to sit in that position. It was important to me to put representation of Black folks on the cards because we also don't see Black representation in mental health. We, If you look at infographics, if you go into doctor's offices, if you go into therapy offices, you don't typically see a lot of Black folks represented in the literature. You go on YouTube and they're doing DBT exercises, you don't see a lot of Black folks represented. Therefore, I wanted us to feel represented in the graphics. The, the um, questions though are general enough that anybody could use them they're not cultural or race-based but they're general enough that anybody could use them but I wanted us to see ourselves so that we can give ourselves permission to do some work to say you know what I do struggle with this this is something that that is bothering me and I have permission to show up in this space and this is just not something white people can do I can do this too so that was super important to me and I wanted folks to know that somebody who looks like you created this versus somebody else who's not even in your culture anywhere near that who's creating something that they're going to say works for you. I truly believe the relatability really helps. And I also think that the re relatability takes away some of the stigma within the culture. Um, mm -hmm. I know that, for example, in my culture, the Iranian culture, uh, even Iranian-American culture, you know, um, the, uh, therapy used to be uh, looked upon from a psychiatry model, where if you had to uh, go to therapy that meant that um, there was you were mentally ill and not only that you weren't mentally ill but you had some condition that needed to be helped or that if you were mentally ill like any other illness so what you have to go to the doctor and take care of it mm -hmm. uh, it's not like it's not supposed to be handled or was bad it's just you know an illness that is the same as any other illness that is there that needs to be treated and I know exactly what you said, that when we brought the, the same conversations into the media that was geared toward the Iranian people, um, talked Farsi, uh, shared the, you know, the, the stories that was there, that it really opened up and people started slowly but surely not only listening to the um, conversation, bringing it to themselves, begin to go to therapy, begin going into groups and forming groups in order to talk about it. And um, although, you know, some areas in like anywhere around the world, mental illness has its own stigma, but you could see how much on uh, so many layers, this stigma was lifted and people were willing to mm -hmm. say they were going to therapy, they were working on themselves that if they had, you know, a depression or um, anxiety or eating disorder or addiction or any of them that they would actually share with each other, seek for help, go out there. So I really believe um, the the relatability uh, works. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad 
that's what you've done and you've you know embraced that type of a relatability and bring it but i also think that when when people are in that space and see you you see your culture from within completely different than someone who sees the culture from outside and I think before the globalization this way, each culture has its had its own space where it could, you know, you could walk into that culture and just learn what that culture was about. And even beauty systems, um, food, the relationship with all of that might have been different in each culture when it was on its own. But I think after this kind of a globalization where anywhere in any part of the world can have a telephone that they can see what everything else is, um, the the lines got blurred a little bit. And, and as you said, then the whiteness became important and the priority and the superiority. And then, you know, it like the values were no longer cultural values. Right. Then it was a big value that was just across the globe. And uh, you know, that was the beauty and that's what it was supposed to be. And it changed um, the inner culture of a lot of the teens and young adults. And as they were growing with this new space and not the old cultural uh, values, let's say, or habits or, you know, um, ways that said that this was good or this was bad. And then uh, now it took on a global construct. Does that does that make sense? There's a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. Because when you have, and this is the inner workings of let's just use diet culture, right? When we can globalize it, we can help people understand that there's one way to be. There's one way to be. And you take out the cultural things that exist for folks and taking out cultural releases individuality. And you no longer have, when individuality begins to cease, people are more likely to adhere to the global point or the global identity. And you're more likely to be persuaded, conditioned, groomed to think in ways that the larger majority thinks. So it has its benefits. While, you know, to remove culture from a lot of, a lot of things, because then you don't know who you are. You don't think the ways that you think and you can remove some of that stuff become one big group thing kind of we're talking about diet culture and that benefits the promotion and the agenda of diet culture all the benefit of it let's take like general mental health is that now we all speak a general language True. that's helpful that's helpful now we can have access to resources that we may not have had otherwise had access to now we can have a general understanding of what anxiety is oh okay so this is happening to people who everybody right so i think it has its benefits and its, its uh, disadvantages as well there's also when we're talking about the diet culture um, and the beautifying and all of that i also think that um culture goes um it's taken from the culture back into the globalization because of fashion aspects also because if for example fashion and merchandising uh you can't you can't come up with one good thing and then sell it beyond a certain time so you have to have novelty you have to have shifts right so then you will go from plump women to very thin women no breasts no nothing like you know straight and then it's like okay we we've milked this as much as we can so now can we have big breasts and now can we have uh bit big bites <laughs> and, and then can we have like these huge lips and then can we have all of this so now you get that you go into other cultures and look at oh look maybe in black culture in hispanic culture and some of the other cultures these bodies are beautiful oh now let's bring them and make them into a fashion because now we got to sell 
the next level of the next couple of years of the, the new products that they need to be in surgery and, and fashion. Make money, capitalism, what's gonna sell? And then, yeah, and then a couple of years later, it's like, no, 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 no. We're back yeah, yeah. into small uh, now uh, breasts and small things. And then you can see all women now going back into under surgery and taking what it was there. <laughs> so, yes, it's just, it, it, we're chasing the carrot that's continued to dangle. And it's just, we're never sad. We're just never going to be good enough, basically, if we rely on that. And that's the, I love what you just said. How is it? that we can be free because there's this this duality here Ebony, mm -hmm. right there's this duality that i want to be admired i want to be seen i want to be uh beautiful or you know people really look at me and um I, I can exist in that way and the duality of and then who am i and my individuality and my own values and you know and maybe i have values not only in the beauty but i have values in other aspects right mm -hmm. in in uh, different skills that I have, that I offer and um, my intellect or the service I offer or any of it, we could create values in, in between, not only internal, but also in between, right? Me and other right. people. Um, how can we handle, in, from your perspective, this duality of wanting to be part of the tribe mm -hmm. and yet holding me um, if it's not at any point in life, not part of the tribe, because if we're going part of a global, you know, fashion tribe, you're never going to be able to reach and sustain because it keeps shifting. It keeps shifting. Right. I think this is good. And I'll use myself as an example. Right. So as somebody who once lost weight and I've gained some of that weight back, you know, how do I keep myself from going to have surgery? Or how do I keep myself from doing another extreme diet? Right. That's what you're asking. Right. How do I keep myself? knowing what's too far right like how this duality like i want to be beautiful i want to be desirable but i also know that that's the, so the work that i think to balance out that duality has to come from centering and anchoring and knowing what's important to you and who you are that requires a lot of healing because i tell people all the time it's i i see why you want to change your body we live in a culture and society where we're constantly being told that this is beautiful so I get it. And that's why you can do with your body what you want because it's yours. And at the same time, if that's causing you to be frazzled all the time, anxious all the time, guilty all the time, then that's a feedback from your internal system that something is off. So how do you slow that down? For me, it's a matter of, yes, I want to be healthy. Yes, I want to be um, desirable. What's too far? So I've developed my own system of limits. What am I willing to do? What am I not willing to do? What feels doable for me? What feels sustainable for me? What feels grounding for me? And those are the things we have to define and identify. It feels grounding for me to work out every day, but it doesn't feel grounding for me for my trainer to tell, to create a meal plan for me. My trainer has often tried to say, I need you to do this shake program to drop some weight. That doesn't feel grounding for me. That is slippery territory for me. Or it's not, it's not healthy for me to actually do bodybuilding anymore. I can't do that. That's dangerous territory for me. So it comes with knowing what your limits are, what your stops are, what your non-negotiables are. And that's your own internal value system. I tell people all the time, it's like your car. You know when your car is low on gas and when you can stop. 
and when you can keep going. So that's the system that we have to create for ourselves as well. And that takes some time. And, and uh, beside what you said, to piggyback on that, I also added something else, uh, which is, which you said before, uh, I'm going to focus on another value. And mm -hmm. then I'm, and then if you are focused on this value with me, I will honor you and then kind of transfer you to, but look at this other shiny thing. Like you're looking at this shiny thing, but like now look at this other shiny thing that I'm really good at too. So although, you know, there's a, uh, there's a, there, there's a battle that I'm not going to win with age on, on some aspects. So it's like, I, I can let go of needing to be um, getting a lot of attention on that level and uh, shifting the need for attention to something else that I feel proud of. And I know that I, it can be useful for the society. So you can still get what you need from to be part of the tribe. It's just mm -hmm. shifting what you thought you used to get and be and offer the tribe at that moment. And disconnecting your worth and value from any of those outcomes. Yes. Like you're not worthy any more worthy because you're skinny. You're not any less worthy because you're you're fat. No. So disconnecting your your worth and value as well. Yes. So everyone, Dr. Ebony Butler, please uh, get her my therapy cards. Where can they get that from? Simple, mytherapycards.com, or you can go to my website, drebony.com. So super simple. Beautiful. Ebony, anything that we haven't shared and you really want people to know? Mm -hmm. I always leave people with the exercise to observe. I know when people get information, they're like, oh my God, I want to go do this now. I need to, I need to do this. Slow it down. Observe ways that you might have been acting out of these systems, acting out of these rules. Observe where some small changes can probably happen. See where they may fit in your life. Start with the smallest thing that can give yourself a win. So maybe you've been engaging in scarcity and denying yourself. Say yes to yourself for something and release yourself of the judgment. So start with observing and then the smallest thing. Beautiful. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with me. Thank you for having me. This was great. Awesome. And for all of you who are out there, create an amazing life for yourself and everyone around you. And until next week, bye-bye.